0: All good stories of all good companies start with people and the two people that created HWM were unusual in all sorts of ways. After the war, these people who'd lived a dangerous and exciting life were suddenly very bored and the best thing they could do was get into a racing car and risk their necks.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening far and wide from places like Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, Charlotte, North Carolina, Overland Park, Kansas, Amman, Jordan, Kostov, Croatia, and Sandhurst, England. Thanks for being here, and I've got a really cool story for you this time. It's about a little racing car you've probably never heard of, and the men who built it. George Abacassus and John Heath were partners in a dealership called Hersham & Walton Motors, and their business was selling Aston Martins, but their passion was racing. They began building their HWM Formula cars after World War II, and in spite of a tight budget and limited resources, they had remarkable success against much bigger contenders like Ferrari and Maserati. And some big names in the up-and-coming generation of drivers got a ride in HWM cars. Guys like Peter Collins and Sterling Moss. Hersham & Walton is still in business today as HWM Aston Martin Limited. And in fact, it's the world's oldest Aston Martin dealer. And I've got two terrific gentlemen to help me tell the whole story. Guy Jenner is the chief executive officer of HWM Aston Martin Limited. And he's a true enthusiast and a great ambassador of the Aston Martin brand. And Simon Taylor is a veteran automotive journalist and magazine publisher. And for many years, he was the voice of Formula One for the BBC. Simon co-wrote Sterling Moss's autobiography, entitled My Racing Life. And he's also the author of the definitive book on our story today. And that's entitled John, George, and the HWMs. And that subject was fascinating enough on its own, but we actually had a lot more to talk about, including some special Aston Martins and some great stories from Simon's career as a motorsports broadcaster. In fact, we covered so much ground that I'm going to give you a special bonus episode this Friday, July 14th, and I promise you won't want to miss it. Remember to follow Horsepower Heritage on your favorite podcast app and leave me five stars and a quick review and share the show with your friends. And get ready now for some great racing history with Guy Jenner, Simon Taylor, and the story of HWM. And that's coming up right after this. Hey guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I'm just checking out what's new at modelcitizendiecast.com. And let me tell you about some of these Porsches. First, there's a 911 SC from the 1978 Safari Rally, and that's in Martini Livery or a 911 S from the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans, or a 904 GTS from the 65 12 Hours of Sebring, All of these cars are in 143rd scale by Spark and they've got terrific details and amazing paint jobs. And best of all, they can fit just about anywhere, from your desktop to your dashboard. There's plenty more to see at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout to get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen DieCast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Gentlemen, first of all, thank you for doing this. I really feel wonderful that you and I connected, Guy. Um, I think we're of the same mind in many ways about cars and racing and all sorts of things. And Simon, I can't tell you what a privilege it is to speak with you with your long career and experience. And So Simon, you found this HWM, and that really was the spark that lit the fire to write the book. Is that correct? It is. To tell you the full story,
0: my particular HWM started life in 1950 as a works Formula Two car. It was raced by the young Sterling Moss. It was actually the first car that Sterling Moss was ever paid to race, rather than just racing his own cars. And the car then went through a complicated series of circumstances, which meant it ended up belonging to 20th Century Fox, playing a role in a Hollywood movie in which the star was Kirk Douglas, and Kirk Douglas drove and indeed crashed uh, what is now my car, although he didn't really crash it. That was all done with models for the script. And when the movie was finished, the car was sold to a racer from Seattle in uh, Washington State, and he updated it with an American V8 engine, with a Chevy V8 engine, which was what we now know as the small block Chevy, which had just been introduced. In fact, we believe that my car was the first road racing car as opposed to Dragster or Oval Racer, the first car that ever raced with a small block Chevrolet. And if you think that the small block Chevrolet has been one of the most successful racing engines of all time and still is in its latest incarnation, you can see that that's uh, an important historical notch on my car's gun. Uh, However, my involvement with the car began in a rather sentimental way. Uh, When I was 11, I was incarcerated in a typical English boarding school with cold baths every morning and you were beaten if you didn't behave. (laughs) I wasn't terribly happy there, but my parents used to keep me sane by sending me car magazines from time to time. And somewhere they found hard to find in in, uh, England in the 1950s. They found an American car magazine, and it was called Sports Cars Illustrated. It later became Car and Driver. And they posted me this thing, and I received it at school. And on the front cover of this magazine was the most wonderful-looking black racing car with cycle wings. And the headline said, Stove Bolt Special, because the magazine had christened this car they were doing a big feature on the car and they christened it the Stovebolt special because in those days chevrolet and Stovebolt had become synonymous in fact the stove Bolt is the six cylinder side valve chevrolet engine going back to the 1920s as all your american listeners will know but the car was called the stove Bolt special the name has stuck but aged 11 i saw the pictures of this car And I absolutely fell in love. And I stuck the picture underneath the lid of my desk where I had to keep my school books. So then every time I opened my desk to get out a book, um, there was the picture of the car. More advanced pupils stuck pictures of ladies on the underside of their desk lids. I had a picture of the Stonebolt special.
1: (laughs) Sounds like a perfectly well-adjusted young man. Well, absolutely.
0: And um, by a further long series of coincidences, which I won't bore you with now, I was able to buy that car in 1999, the car that I had fallen in love with 50 years before. So um, it's kind of a nice story that I ended up owning the car that I fantasized about as a small
1: boy. That's fantastic. Uh, I want to bring Guy in here because he's been listening patiently. First of all, Guy, give me a quick bio. Uh, I'll just tell listeners right now that you're the managing director of the world's oldest Aston Martin dealer. So, thanks for being on the show. No, a pleasure, Maurice.
2: Yeah, it, for me, I'm I am automotive through and through. I've uh, I, I've spent my life in love with with anything with an engine, and I and I nearly followed a similar route um, to Simon in my early career so I knew I wanted to work with cars and I, I, I actually wanted to be an automotive journalist and I managed to do a little bit of writing um, got published in Top Gear I actually did a piece where I out drove Damon Hill but it was on a computer game that he was launching rather than uh, in <laughs> real life sadly um, but nevertheless you know it, it, it's quite the accolade. Um, But at the same time, I also was working as my weekend job at a Mercedes-Benz car dealership. And it got to the point where I needed to decide what I wanted to do in life. And I was given this opportunity to work at the dealership and I would be given a brand new Mercedes-Benz company car. And it was just too attractive to turn down. So I thought, well, I'm going to give this a go for a little while and see if it works. And if not, I can always go and find myself a proper job afterwards. And, And so that's what I did. But it, it it just went really well, and I, I it, what I found is because I'd spent my youth reading car magazines from cover to cover, I spoke the same language as those that that that, that wanted to buy cars and were interested in cars, and and quickly gravitated to the sportier side of the industry. So I, I worked worked my way up, but worked through Porsche, Ferrari, Maserati, and and ultimately I've spent the last. Uh, well, since 2007 with Aston Martin. And, and that's a brand that um, just really got under my skin, I think. And for me, HWM in particular, it, it's a business that I I came to one cold January Sunday to meet Mike and Andrew Harting, who um, were the then owners of HWM. And Andrew is still involved in the business. And I was instantly seduced by its history, the story behind the business. And um, loved everything about it, and and indeed Mike and Andrew Harting, I could tell I could get on with incredibly well. So that that was it. That was ten years ago, and um,
1: yeah, they haven't been able to get rid of me since. I'm sure you feel fortunate to be in a part of the automotive trade or business that is still very much rooted in the enthusiast market. And you know, it's it's a rare thing selling cars to be able to sell such awesome machines. Yeah, I completely
2: agree that we you know we don't sell transport what what we sell is a product that allows people to indulge their passion and so day to day we are able to be incredibly enthusiastic about the cars that we get involved with and we are we're not just an Aston Martin dealer we sell uh, specialist sports cars as well and for us anything that's an interesting driver's car is an attractive proposition to have at the dealership and then the latest news for us is we're about to take on Caterham cars for for the southeastern london because we have this ambition to get back to track again and so we we're, we're going to be doing um more race support more track work uh it's a, it's a really exciting prospect for us
1: yeah the pared down bare essentials caterham is a fantastic machine and most americans won't know the car but while you're listening to the show just google caterham very quick c a t e r h a m and you'll see what i mean simon the story of hwm is an obscure one i think we can uh, recognize that but the connection between hersham and walton motors which was a car dealership established before the second world war and then the creation of hwm there's an interesting origin story there isn't there
0: well there certainly is um all good stories of all good companies start with people and the two people that created hwm were unusual in all sorts of ways there were two garages in two small london suburban towns one is called hersham and one is called walton on thames because it's on the river thames and there is a bridge that crosses the river just by the town of walton and john heath ended up a man called john heath who was tall aristocratic he was actually a baron Full title was Baron Heath, although he never used it because he said he'd rather have oil under his fingernails and be working in the workshop than being thought an aristocrat. But he ended up owning these two uh, little garages, one in Herschel, one in Walton on Thames. And after the war, after World War Two, he bought a building near the bridge at Walton on Thames, which had been used in the war for manufacturer of aircraft parts. And he combined his two businesses and called it Hersham and Walton Motors, HWM. And he was never a great racing driver, although he did race, uh, but he was passionate about running the business and making cars. That was John Heath. The other of this extraordinary duo was called George Abacassis. And he had been a successful racing driver before World War II, all he really wanted to do was to go racing and have a good party. However, this charismatic man was not surprisingly very good at selling cars because he had a lot of charm as well as being an extremely good driver. And so the two of them worked together John Heath running the business and George Abacassis racing whatever cars they happened to have in stock and also being a very good, smooth salesman to get them out the door. That led to them building their own cars, which were called HWMs. They built one in 1948, one in 1949, and four in 1950, and so on. So one's talking about very small numbers, but they were raced successfully all over Europe by very good drivers who were persuaded by John Heath to drive for them for usually very small amounts of money. And so the team went on running pretty much on a shoestring through the 1950s. Unfortunately, it all changed in the Mille, Mille of the 1,000-mile road race around Italy in 1956, because John Heath, driving one of his own Jaguar-powered HWM sports cars, crashed and was killed. And from that day, HWM no longer built racing cars. George Abacassis realised that he now had to run the business himself. And so he picked up the cudgels and became an ex-racing driver. He never put a crash helmet on from the day that John Heath was killed. And he ran the business and built it up, selling Aston Martins, but also selling all sorts of other sports cars. And really because of George Abacassis's reputation in the motor racing world, and because what John Heath had done with building successful racing cars called HWMs, and uh, Mike Harting, who'd been the sales manager of Aston Martin, joined HWM at the end of the 50s, and he and George Abacassis ran the business. George Abicassis retired. Mike Harting continued to run the business right up until well into his 80s. Sadly, he died not long ago, but his son, Continued to run the business, and of course now we have Guy at the helm, and they are not only the oldest Aston Martin dealer in the world, but they're also one
1: of the most successful. Guy, I know you have a story that you want to tell about these gentlemen. Well, I wonder whether the next
2: thing to discuss is what formed them, and 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 uh, you know George Abacassus in particular is an enormously interesting character for me, and it, he was incredibly brave he was a courageous man and he'd had a remarkable war leading up to um you know the start of the race team so it it, already as simon has said he was he was a talented racing driver at that point and naturally gravitated towards being a pilot and and he put his hand up to be um a a pilot in bomber command and this is a period where almost 50 percent of flights ended fatally um, for those pilots and George with his skill managed to fly 26 successful bombing raids which is a remarkable reflection of the of the man's capability and understandably then he was asked to train pilots which I think he found by comparison a little pedestrian um, but the one thing he did do was he spent his time when training um, learning to land aircraft with just a single engine this was a period where actually training was as, as dangerous as engaging in uh, in Boeing raids, simply because the training teams got all of the hand-me-down aircraft, those that were, were at the end of their usable life. And so actually technical issues could often end in, um, in, in fatal crashes. So George was smart enough to, to see ahead that having that ability to land an aircraft with one engine might stand him in good stead. And sure enough, after spending time training pilots he was recruited to the special operation executive which is i mean it's a whole nother story in itself but this was an underground task force um of all sorts of functions but in particular with the pilots they were an elite at hand selected group of pilots that, that were em- employed to fly aircraft by night over enemy lines at low level to Drop off dignitaries, pick up dignitaries, spies, supplies—remarkably um, dangerous stuff. With just a gunner at the rear and the pilot at the front, um, George flew successful flights until his day came, and they engaged in a gunfight, and and his aircraft got shot down. And there was one member of the uh, the flight crew that that unfortunately perished in the, in the gunfight. But that aside, he lost an engine. And managed to land that aircraft and save everybody on board bar the one person who lost their life in the gunfight um successfully the the aircraft was on fire. he used the light to be able to see where he was landing and um yeah it, it was his foresight in training that enabled them all to survive and um Simon, I think then he he ended up being the only one that was captured trying to make his escape on the ground
0: that's right the uh, you may well know more about the detail of this than I guy, but Uh, What I discovered when I was researching the book I wrote about HWMs uh, was that that flight was um, a low-level flight over occupied Scandinavia, I believe, um, because he was dropping supplies to the local resistance fighters. So he wasn't carrying much in the way of armaments, and he was found by a German fighter and shot down. And as you say, the fact the plane was on fire, it was one of George's throwaway comments, because George had this wonderfully languid way, a rather languid, upper-class way of telling stories with his cigarette holder, permanently lit cigarette at the end of it. And he used to say, yes, well, I brought the kite down. It was quite fortunate, actually, because it was pitch dark. But I was able to see where we were because we were on
1: fire. <laughs> Love
0: it. it- uh. But he got it down safely. The five of them escaped, and George, I think, was on the run for a couple of days before he and one other crew member were found and taken to a prisoner of war camp where he spent the rest of his war. Um, but certainly two of them were able to get back to England and carried on fighting. So it, it's a very romantic story. The fact is that George never really made anything of his war record, didn't really talk about it very much. The only Circumstance under which he would talk about it as if he was telling a joke. You know, he would make a joke of what he did. And equally, in his early days in motor racing, he had some fairly hairy escapades. But he belonged to the generation and the class of drivers and pilots who had this sort of devil-may-care approach to life. And after the war, I mean, as Guy quite rightly says, so many of the racing drivers became pilots in the war because that was the obvious route for them. But equally, after the war, these people who'd lived a dangerous and exciting life were suddenly very bored because there was the austere, grey, rationed life in England in the 1940s after the war. And they were bored. And the best thing they could do was get into a racing car and risk their necks, And in those days, of course, the dangers of motor racing were immense. The numbers of fatalities were extraordinary. Um, Drivers were getting killed almost every weekend and usually only merited, uh, unless they were a world champion, usually only merited a couple of lines in the local newspaper to say that somebody had died in a racing car crash. And that was the background to how HWM began. And I think the other thing to say about HWM is that, There were no other British racing teams that were doing anything at the end of the 40s. There was this enormous project to build Britain's first and greatest Grand Prix car, which was BRM. It was an enormously expensive operation, which initially was going to be paid for by major companies in the motor industry subscribing to pay for this thing on the basis that it would be winning lots of races and would be good for British prestige and it had massive headlines and massive publicity, started this project in 1947. The first car didn't race for two and a half years. And when it did, it was terribly impressive, but terribly unreliable. And by the time they got the thing running properly, Formula One had changed, the rules had changed, and the the car was no longer able to run in, in Grand Prix. So it was a huge failure. While that was getting all the publicity and all the excitement, on a virtually non-existent budget, John Heath was building his cars using bits and pieces, not from scrap yards, but bits and pieces off the shelf. Uh, my HWM, which was built in 1950, still has its front suspension, which comes from a standard 12 saloon, but it's a car that was raced. Uh, and that's how John Heath put this thing together. And while BRM was failing, so the gallant little HWM team with their cars stuffed in a rickety converted bus were being taken around Europe and the start money from one race would pay for the fuel in the bus to get them to the next race. It was literally a hand to mouth existence. And yet, HWM, on that shoestring basis were successful. And they won races, they beat Ferraris, they beat Continental Works teams. And I called my book the first racing team to fly the flag for Britain, because although in the 1920s there had been uh, British racing cars that had won races, before HWM nobody really mounted a Works racing effort around Europe. And that's what HWM did from 1950 onwards. And what is so extraordinary was that they did it with so little resources. It's amazing that they scored the results that they did, helped by young drivers who John Heath persuaded
1: to drive for them, including Sterling Moss. Simon, I, I have to say that it is a David and Goliath story. Whether or not, at the end of the race, they were the victors, it really doesn't even matter. And I also think that they would have been very much at home with post-war hot rodders in the United States. They had that same sort of attitude and enthusiasm.
0: I think that's absolutely right. Um, Hot rodders, almost by definition, use production parts that they can find as cheaply as possible an old Ford side-valve V8 engine from a scrapyard, Uh, perhaps a Model A chassis. All the bits are put together like a jigsaw. Um, And pretty much that's what HWM did. Their cars were beautifully made and John Heath was a stickler for appearance. The cars were always painted a metallic pale green and all the contemporary reports that one reads says that the cars turned up looking immaculate on the starting grid. The fact that all the mechanics were dead on their feet from having worked days and nights to get the cars on the grid because bits were breaking and bits were failing had nothing to do with it. And you're right that whether they won or not, they created an enormously good impression. They didn't always win because the lack of money meant that the cars weren't terribly reliable. It meant that if an engine broke, it had to be patched up really um, in, in the sort of garage under the pub where the team was staying so that they could get to the next race five days later to be in time for practice. And there wasn't time to mend the thing properly. So there's an awful lot of that. It
1: was make, do, and mend. Um, It's a hell of a way to make money. I mean, it wasn't some kind of windfall for them after all. Uh, There were others who were doing similar things. Donald Healy comes to mind. Sidney Allard comes to mind, but not quite in the same vein. Like, for example, Donald Healy, he was really interested in a commercial road car, and the racing was the way to get there with, you know, with the beginning with the Healy Silverstone. And then Sidney Allard, was he was certainly focused on competition cars. But Simon, can you go into a little bit more detail on sort of the dearth of resources? When you say they were living hand-to-mouth, it was really like they weren't sure if they had were going to have enough money in their pocket to get to the next race date.
0: Well, that was exactly the, the position. And you say it's a hell of a way to make money. There was never any question of making money. There was just a question of getting through the season, keeping the cars running, and having a great time. Uh, I mean, John Heath was very serious about his racing, but it, he did, certainly didn't expect it to, it, it to make him money. The reason why the HWM garage back at Walter on thames had to keep running was because they were making money by buying and selling interesting old sports cars. And repairing and servicing cars. And that, that business gave them the, the means to go racing. But they never made any money out of their racing. It was just a matter of, I mean, here's just one quick example. They were at a race in France and you, you would get starting money for turning up. Not very much, but just for turning up. And then you do the race. You hope the car would last. If it did, you might get a little bit of prize money. And then the cars were put back in these two awful old buses and they frequently broke down, and they would go on to the next race, which might be 600 bars away. And they didn't have enough money to buy petrol to put in the buses to get to the next race until on Monday morning, they got the money out of the organisers. And because time was short, what Al Francis, the chief mechanic, would do is he would go to a garage, he would fill up all the fuel tanks in the old buses, absolutely to the gunnels, and then say to the proprietor of the garage, look, I'm sorry, I haven't got any money. And that's so clever. (laughs) We'll leave one truck here as a sort of deposit with a racing car in it. I'm going to send the other bus with two racing cars in it on its way. And when I've got the money out of the organizers, I'll come back, pay for the petrol, and then I can drive the other bus on. It was that sort of existence. And if you think how modern Formula One teams run with hundreds, if not thousands, of employees, with engineers and computers and drivers being paid half a million dollars a week, you have to remember that Britain's considerable role in modern motorsport, uh, in teams, in manufacturers, in designers, started with HWM. And then one has to uh, add in the same breath, Cooper, another South London uh, suburban garage, and then also several of the other teams who Ferrari, Enzo Ferrari, referred to sneeringly as garagista. They're just men running little garage businesses. The fact that they went on to beat Ferrari, of course, is ironic.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I think there was also this sweet spot in time where this could happen and and everything came together so so first of all the cost of entry into Grand Prix racing at that point was perhaps far lower than it was in decades to come so so that that was a great help we had the coming together of John Heath and George Abacassus as two really charismatic figureheads and without that charisma and that ability to get their team to buy in and work day and night seven days a week this just would not have happened and i think that combined with the fact that they had access to a team who had just come back from war they were hardy they were used to to the hardship of war and therefore i think it was in their mindset their psyche to um to put up with the hardship that came with. supporting hwm and and their endeavors all all of that combined allowed hwm to have a bit of a springboard and make an impact that um may not certainly wouldn't happen today in the same way
1: it was a crucible and i think it's remarkable what they did and i would love to talk about the cars themselves simon they they only ever built 19 cars right and they were all competition cars not all of them were uh most of them were open wheelers, but then there were some enclosed-bodied sports cars later on down the road. But let's talk about the technical details. So Abacassus had been racing an Alta sports car pre-war, right? And that was an elegant little engine, a, a cross-flow twin cam four-cylinder. That's right. And um, in fact, there
0: were several Altas that went through the hands of George and John. George raced more than one Alta before the war. One of them was a single-seater, and he was very successful with that. Um, He then raced after the war with more Alta's. And uh, Geoffrey Taylor, who was at Tolworth, just up the road from Walton-on-Thames, he built these cars, and his engines were little four-cylinder twin-cam jewels. And there is no way that HWM could possibly have built their own engines. They simply didn't have the facilities. So what they did was they used Alta engines. Uh, Obviously, George had a very good relationship with Jeffrey Taylor. So Alta engines, two-litre Alta engines were used. This was particularly helpful because in those days, there was Formula 1, there was Formula 2, there was Formula 3. Formula 1 was... uh, Uh because of the failure of BRM, really dominated by Ferrari and Alfa Romeo with very expensive, complicated, well-funded machinery. Formula 2 was a better place for HWM to go hunting, and in Formula 2, you needed a 2-litre engine. So this 2-litre Alta engine worked very well. They made uh, the first car, which wasn't, by some measures, actually an HWM, was an Alta chassis with a streamlined HWM body, which they built in 1948. They realised, John Heath realised, that the streamlined body was heavy uh, and didn't actually help the car very much. So they made a much lighter, open-wheeled Formula 2 car in 1949, just one. And then in 1950, encouraged by the success of the 49 car, John decided to build himself a works team. To call HWM having a factory um, is is a bit flattering. It was more of a shed. But anyway, they built three works cars. And then to try and help pay for the whole thing, they built a fourth car, which they sold to a customer. So suddenly there was a works team. And they built cars to run in single-seater racing. The Formula changed. But they were able to run in Formula Two and then in Formula One with cars that were increasingly becoming less competitive because the technology was marching on. The cars were getting more sophisticated. The engines were getting more sophisticated. And John Heath couldn't keep up because he didn't have the budget.
2: Simon, that's a reference point. Forgive me when you're uh, with but in in terms of. Just to to put it in perspective, I read that when it came to chassis design, for example, they used to chalk it out on the garage floor as opposed to using a jig. It was that rudimentary.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, there's a wonderful man who um, sadly only died, I think, last year, well into his 90s, um, who had a friend. He was working um, in aircraft engineering and he had a friend who worked for h w m and he dropped in to see him one evening to see if he could get him away from his work to have a quick half in the local pub and he was shocked to see, because he was a proper engineer, he was shocked to see exactly what you say there was um, there were chalk lines on on the floor, and he said what was so amazing was that not only were they just chalk lines rather than careful pencil lines on a drawing board, if you press hard with a chalk. On the floor, the chalk becomes blunter, the line gets thicker, and therefore the measurements get even less accurate. And he was so horrified that he said to John Heath, you cannot build racing cars like this. And so John Heath hired him, and the later HWMs were slightly more sophisticated. However, what happened was that as single-seater competitors, as Formula 2 and then Formula 1 competitors... HWM simply didn't have the resources to to keep up. So they decided to move into sports car racing. And to do that, they could use Jaguar engines, which were easily available, which weren't terribly expensive, which were very reliable and pretty powerful. But they didn't have the money to go and build new sports cars. So what they did was they got hold of their single-seaters, which weren't winning races anymore, and they simply sold them up and turned them into sports cars. And that's why, when we say 19 HWMs were built, if you actually write out all the chassis numbers, there are 23, but four of those, first they were a single seater, then they were converted into sports cars. And it wasn't until Eugene Dunn, the man who didn't like chalk lines on the floor, and not until he joined, that they then built their own um, dedicated sports cars, of which... Um,
1: Only only two were ever made, and then John Heath was killed. They could also afford to take chances that maybe other teams wouldn't take, and that is illustrated well by their selection of drivers.
0: Yes, HWM selected drivers on two bases. I mean, they couldn't afford to take any risks. Um, They needed to have one or two good drivers um, who drove... Almost for nothing, but we're paid a little bit of money. Um, I think Sterling Moss is getting 25 quid a race.
1: And it was Sterling's first paid drive, right? He was doing, I think, club racing before that, maybe racing a car that his dad owned.
0: No, they were cars that he owned, but they were in basically in Formula 3. They were little rear-engine, motorcycle-engined Coopers. Um, and yes, you're quite right. Uh, the first time he ever got paid to drive somebody else's car, Uh, was with hwm Um, but what hwm did because as we keep saying money was painfully short is that they would try to take as many as four cars to a race two of them would probably be driven by good drivers maybe certainly sterling moss maybe lance macklin george abacassi still did a bit of racing and was very quick but then the other cars would be driven they would be as what were known as renter drives. They would get either a rich playboy to come and drive, and there were quite a lot of people in motor racing in those days with money who weren't bad as racers, and they were able to carry on racing, but they were paying their way. Or even more, John Heath would go to the circuit, uh, to the race organisers, and say, look, I've got a car, my fourth car hasn't got a driver, why don't you pay me to put a local hero in the car? And so this happened several times. There would be an HWM driven by somebody from the local motor club who may have thought that he was something of a hero in his own little world. But once he got into the car, was completely um, overwhelmed. There's a famous story, if I've got time to tell it. At the Dutch Grand Prix one year, HWM had a fourth car. And John Heath said to the Dutch organizers, Pay me five hundred quid, and you can put your man in this car. So the local hero was put in the car and was desperately slow in practice. And he went to John Heath and said, Your car is no good. There's Sterling Moss on pole position. And my car is infinitely slower. And it's no good. And I demand that the the organisers get their money back, or you find me a decent car. So John said fine, and he called Sterling over and said, Sterling, could you just get in this man's car and do a couple of laps, because he thinks it's not right. Just see if you can see what it's like. So Sterling, of course, went out in that car and was just as quick. So um, very often, these rental drives were no good, but the money helped to pay for the rest of the team to keep going.
2: Simon, I wonder... Do, do you feel HWM drivers would have benefited from the experience of George Abacasus as a figurehead in the business? So clearly, again, if we if we think about his war, he spent time training pilots. Um, he was already an enormously experienced racer, and it it, it it seems to me the likes of Sterling Moss and Peter Collins, they were really critical, formative years, not just uh, in terms of race etiquette, understanding. Uh, uh, how to get the best out of a car that perhaps is a bit of an underdog and learning such skills as slipstreaming because it was an absolute requirement to to try and uh, place a, an HWM anywhere in the running
0: well that's that's very interesting i i don't think that there was ever because that was not what george was like um I, I i mean maybe this was how he trained his his pilots in the war as well he 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 trained by example rather than by telling his drivers what to do. I don't think George would ever say, look, old boy, I think you ought to take third gear in that corner rather than second, uh, because he didn't operate like that. But the, what the HWM team did was absolutely, they exposed their young drivers to the rigors of doing race after race, often against much better opposition. And, Certainly, for, I mean, Sterling Ross always said that HWM was a crucial stepping stone uh, in his career and he learned a lot of lessons. The lessons he learned weren't so much from the mouth of George Abacassis, They were lessons, hard lessons learned on the job. Uh, where George Abacassis was significant though was that he was a very good spotter of talent and he would keep his eyes open and see who was going well about the place, and he would say to John Heath, "I think young Lance Macklin's pretty good. I think you ought to have a go with him. You ought to see if you can persuade him to come and have a have a drive." And uh, it, it, George was absolutely a crucial part of the team, even though all the decisions uh, were taken by John Heath, all the uh, the rules and the uh, the task lists. All of that came from John. John was the driving boss of the team. George was the languid chap with the long cigarette holder, who nevertheless ensured that the atmosphere was a very happy one. You really saw John Heath smiling. You all the time saw George's sardonic smile. Usually he would have a glass in his hand and his, of course, his cigarette and his cigarette holder. Um, he was a party man, but of course, he knew exactly which way he was up.
2: It's also worth talking about, it's easy to gravitate towards the drivers, but of course they had some fantastic engineers work for them as well. And, and the name that springs to mind is Alf Francis, who, as I understand it, when he joined HWM, was an engineer, but he certainly hadn't worked on a race car before walking into the building.
0: That That's absolutely true. Alf Francis was a Polish, um, he, he fought for the free Polish um, offshoot of, of the Allied forces Um, and was an extremely tough customer. Um, I don't think he was ever an engineer. He certainly wasn't trained as an engineer. He was just a man who could put a racing car together, usually against impossible odds, without the right bits, uh, and make it work. But you're absolutely right. I mean, he said he wrote a wonderful autobiography um, about his life with the HWM team, and he had never seen a racing car let alone worked on one before john heath offered him his first job and he remained with the team he was um irascible um he was opinionated um he wanted to run things his own way there were frequent stand-up rows usually when nobody had had any sleep for about three nights uh, there were stand-up riots between him and, and John Heath, and in fact, at one point, he finally said, with a few um, uh, colourful words which he could he'd learned uh, to say in his Polish accent, and he said, "This is ridiculous. I'm leaving." And he would he, he would leave, and then, in fact, he he left one year and then went and watched a motor race from behind the fences, the spectator fences at Goodwood. And he went around to see John Heath on Monday and said, I can't think of anything else to do. I want to come back. And in the end, he did leave, uh, but went on to work for some years for, for Sterling Moss um, in a team that Sterling Moss was running for himself. He was an extraordinary man. I don't think you could call any of those people at HWM engineers. They were mechanics, and they were grubby, And their overalls didn't get washed. And uh, even Eugene Dunn, the man who did join as a sort of designer, he told me that, I mean, these were the days of upper class, working class, and middle class. And it was just after the war when you had officers and men. And Eugene told me that when the team would be staying in some hotel somewhere, Well, either the drivers of the team and their ladies would be staying in a nicer hotel, or if they were in the same hotel, all the drivers and their wives or girlfriends and the team people would be at one table, and at the other end of the room would be the grubby mechanics who would come in from uh, working in the garage, and they would sit down and before going back to carry on working through the night. And Eugene said, it was always like that. And they called us the Orables because we were dirty. They had a clean shirt that they could put on after the day's practice. But the mechanics just had to go
1: back to work. And that's what it was like. And Simon, didn't the mechanics sleep on the team bus or something like that? Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: Well, they, they, what they used to do was actually
0: when it was hot, they would sleep under the bus and uh, sometimes they would sit in the cockpits of the racing cars and go to sleep. Um, I mean, there are extraordinary stories. I, I loved researching all of this, and my book is full of these wild stories of what the mechanics
1: had to go through to get the cars to the next race. And And Simon, if there was a source of friction, was it not that John Heath was a notorious penny pincher, and that's what it came down to in many respects. He was,
0: um, but funnily enough, I mean, as Guy said earlier, these people had just come out of the war when, if you're fighting, obviously, it's very, very tough. But also, if you were a schoolboy at the time that was rationing, you couldn't get much food. Uh, They were used to uh, deprivation, and, and the mechanics didn't uh, protest about being treated as a different class from the drivers because that's how life was and john heath certainly was parsimonious um there's a great story that um he was walking through the workshop and he saw on the floor a split pin i don't know if you call them split pins in america but
1: a cotter pin cotter pin right yeah
0: uh, and you only use them once and then when you take them off you throw them away And uh, John Heath saw this split pin lying on the floor, a used split pin, and said in a rage, pick that up. It could be useful. But the reason why there wasn't really friction is because the one thing that John Heath could do is he could get up from the table and without changing his shirt, he would go back into the garage and he would work with the mechanics till three and four in the morning because he was a very good engineer. You know, he designed and, and built the cars And the mechanics all respected him for that. And they loved it that he would come and actually work with them and get his hands dirty.
1: (laughs) He sounds like, you know, John Heath and my grandfather would get along. That man could squeeze a penny so tight. (laughs) But as you say, they were used to austerity. And there was plenty of deprivation for a good decade in Great Britain after the war. No question. An interesting fact, uh, you guys probably know this, but it was only a couple of years ago that the UK had finally repaid its full debt to the United States um, for the war. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, something that maybe me, for, for sort of ordinary
0: English people like me, um, it may be actually more graphic, is the war ended in 1945. Meat was still rationed until 1955. Uh, So, in you know, 10 years after the uh, the war was over, you had to queue up with your coupon to be able to buy a small quantity of meat. And I was a child then, and I can remember sweets, candy, were rationed. And you used to have tickets. You could go and get a week's supply of barley sugar, which if you were a little schoolboy, was very important. It was all rationed still because Britain had bankrupted itself winning the war. It won the war with the great help, of course, of the Americans, but 10 years on, there was much more prosperity in Germany who'd lost the war than there was in the UK that had won it.
1: I am reading currently a very thick book called The Last Days of the British Empire, The Last Thousand Days of the British Empire. It's quite fascinating. I wonder how you feel about that, having been a young man um, in the post-war years, uh are, are you talking about the the class structure in 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 the UK? I guess what I'm talking about is the tremendous change after the war. Uh and and yes, I guess that does mean I'm talking about class structure because as you say that's just how life was. And yeah. Well, I, I you're absolutely right and in retrospect
0: um it's pretty disgraceful that If you were born um, in a a council flat with um, parents who probably both went out to work but earned very little, and you went to the local village school or whatever it might be, it was much harder for you, if you were an intelligent boy, to get out of that. You could get out of that with a bit of luck and an enormous amount of hard work, but it was difficult, and it was easier if you had been born from wealthy, middle-class parents, you'd been to a, what we call a public school, which is, of course, a private school, um, and perhaps you'd been to university. And it was much easier if you spoke with the right accent. Um, I mean, I was born in 1944, so a year before the war ended. Um, I left school in 1962. Things were getting a bit looser then, but the fact that I had been to a public school uh, my parents weren't particularly rich, but they were probably upper middle class. We have a few aristocrats quite recently in our family tree. And I, I spoke with the right accent. And of course, it made life easier. And I think that was wrong. Fortunately, now, and probably we're talking about, I don't know, the last 20 years, we have become much more of a meritocracy. And of course, elsewhere, I mean, if you're thinking about. Uh, The United States in particular, where they didn't have class consciousness, but they had race consciousness. And it was more difficult if you were the wrong race, I'm talking 50, 40 years ago, to have the same opportunities. Maybe you could also say in both our countries, it was more difficult if you were a female to run a big company than if you were a male. All of that has changed and is still changing. And thank goodness What was remarkable about these little racing teams after the war was that there wasn't really the same class consciousness, so that even though you had George Abacassus sitting at his restaurant table at the other end of the room from the mechanics, that little operation with John Heath in the workshop getting his hands dirty, that had kind of broken down the class barriers. And if you think of John Cooper and his father Charlie Cooper, who were much more successful than HWM, went on for much longer. But they really came after HWM. Charlie Cooper was an extremely rough chap who ran a little garage, and he, he was very much a rough diamond. I don't know how much he'd been to school, but not very much. But he was a clever, ingenious, self-taught engineer. And motor racing did become, quite quickly and probably before a lot of other areas, uh, in the UK, it did become classless, and it was all the better for it.
1: All great points, and thank you for adding that context in terms of you know the the societal factors. I think it's interesting. By the way, you know the one thing that the United States had was Hollywood, and Hollywood has always been about reinventing oneself. So you could be. Literally born in the mud and still become world famous and adored by all the all the film goers. So kind of interesting.
2: Do you think that that possibly gives huge hope to a nation as well? Doesn't it, it, it as, as a shining example yes. of opportunity?
0: But I mean, there are other. Things. Hollywood is a perfect example of how you can come from nothing and become very important. Uh, football is another. Um, you know, people have come from absolutely nothing because they're brilliant young footballers and show business, obviously, music. You can be uh, somebody who started with nothing, but you can sing or you can write wonderful music and you become important and your talent uh, is able to break through. And Hollywood o- obviously is like that. So little by little, it has become more possible for people to be judged on their talent and not on how they talk where they were born what color their skin is what sex they are it's become more and more a true meritocracy
1: a guide to answer your question it is sort of self-evident to americans that you can rise above that you can climb the ladder it is uh, something that we're born into which is quite uniquely american i think and i hope that doesn't sound boastful but it it is just Much like the class system in the UK in the 20th, most of the 20th century and prior, rising above your station in the United States is just the way things are.
2: It's, I guess it's the definition of the American dream.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's really kind of what it boils down to. So, um, hey, you know what? I would love to hear a little bit about the HWM Jaguars because this this is just a few of the cars, but uh, they're very special.
0: Indeed. Um, Well, as we've said earlier, um, HWM um, realised that it was going to become harder and harder for them to be successful in Formula One, Formula Two racing, single-seater racing. And the first HWM Jaguars, the first sports cars, were simply rebuilds of single-seaters that they couldn't sell. If they'd been able to sell those single-seaters for a decent price, then they would have done. But If you went to Walton-on-Thames in 1954, you would see propped up against the wall chassis of single-seaters that were two years old or more. And John Heath would never throw anything away. He would always use something two or three times, if possible. And so he used those chassis, put Jaguar engines in, put wider uh, sports car bodies on, and suddenly found he had some sports cars. And there were five, I think. From memory, there were five of those first HWM Jaguars. The Jaguar three point four liter Jaguar engine put in a sport in a sports racing car. Then things became a little bit more uh, successful. The man who didn't like chalk lines on the floor, Eugene Dunn, who actually had a drawing board and a tiny room upstairs, he drew out the Mark II HWM Jaguar, which was a much better car. Um, it had a more sophisticated chassis. Uh, It was lighter. It was more compact. It wasn't, most significantly, uh, simply a make-do-and-mend of an old converted single-seater. And they only made two of those. They would have made more, but in one of them, John Heath was killed in 1956. They actually had a third chassis that they'd already made, and George, after getting over the grief of the loss of John Heath, in April 1956. And after having devoted his attention to getting HWM as a business back on its feet after the loss of the most important person in it, he decided to use that last unused chassis and make himself a road car. So it was an HWM Jaguar, but with a lovely streamlined coupe body, which he was going to drive on the road. It took forever to do. It cost three times as much as he meant it to. He he christened it George's Folly because it was a mad project that he shouldn't have wasted his time on. It was finished. It was a lovely car, but he sold it very quickly. The car is still around, the only road-going HWM ever built. Uh, It belongs to uh, a man in Germany, a delightful man who's owned it for years his son uh, has now taken over most of the driving of it but they're both uh, they they can be seen doing classic car events and so on i've driven the car it's absolutely lovely and it may be george's folly but that single road car is wonderful particularly if you think that when it was built in 1957 the latest greatest jaguar sports car was the XK140 which of course by comparison was pretty old-fashioned looking, and had a solid back axle and not much else. It had the same engine, of course. And the HWM Jaguar had this wonderful swoopy body, which George had got his friend Frank Feely uh, to design. Frank Feely, of course, the great Aston Martin stylist. And it wasn't until 1961 when Jaguar brought out the E-Type that they produced thing that looked half as good as George's own road-going HWM.
1: You know, some of the lines on the HWM Jaguar uh, remind me of the Picasso. In other ways, it looks a bit like an AC Aseka or a DB3. It has some very bold styling cues compared to many of the production GTs of the time. It's a very unique car. Well, that's right. Um, George,
0: interestingly enough, although it wasn't something that he boasted about, George was an extremely good artist. And the the most moving drawing, I think, that that still exists of George's is that when he was incarcerated in the German prisoner of war camp, to keep himself amused, he made pencil sketches of the inside of his prison hut with the details of the tin mugs that they drank out of and the hooks that they hung their coats on. Beautifully done little sketches, which I was able to put in my book, because George Abacassis' son, David Abacassis, still has his father's notebooks from his prisoner of all time. And when George started to think he ought to have a road car, he drew out what he thought the ultimate HWN coupé should look like. And it was a bit wild, to be honest. I mean, it was over the top, rather in the way that the Begasso a few years before had been over the top, and he showed it to Frank Feely, who of course had designed the Lagonda Rapide before the war, he'd designed the DB 24 Aston and the D B three S, and Frank said, Steady on, George. This is this is a bit extreme. And George said, Well look, you you, you modify it, you this up and let's see how it looks. So He did, and the finished result was written with all sorts of little Frank Feely details, like the beeps over the headlights and so on. So Frank Feely turned it into a very good-looking car. But that original drawing that George did is still in existence, and of course, that's in the book.
1: By the way, Simon, uh, at the risk of speculating—well, we're going to speculate right now, if that's okay— I would say that you're the the greatest living authority on HWM, right? I mean, after all, you were the man who literally wrote the book. I wonder if you think, had John Heath not been killed in the 1956 millimilia, would they have continued to build cars and perhaps maybe their fortunes would have risen and there might have been a long succession of HWMs? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think if I'm honest... John
0: Heath's approach to motor racing, his parsimonious make-do-and-mend approach, was very much rooted in the late 1940s in people with very little to work on after the war, doing what they could with what they had. Um, And John Heath was brilliant at that. And through the late 40s and the early 50s, he did a wonderful job with not very much. He was killed in 1956. And by the Late 1950s, racing cars were getting much more sophisticated. In sports car racing, which is where HWM then were, you had the monocoque Jaguar D type with wonderful aerodynamics by Malcolm Sayer. In Formula One racing, you had uh, the Van Wall. Uh, you had obviously Colin Chapman bringing Lotus to the fore. Things were getting much more sophisticated. And I have to say that I think John Heath really belonged to an earlier generation. And I'm sure he would have continued because he loved racing and he loved competing and he loved building racing cars. But I think he would have found it harder as time went on.
1: It's interesting to me, though, to maybe contemplate a mid-engine HWM in, say, 1963 or 65. It would have been interesting to see.
0: Well, it would. um, But you see, No HWM had a space frame. They were all built on a ladder chassis, which was an old-fashioned way to build a racing car going back to pre-war years. Uh, Whereas, of course, Colin Chapman and others had discovered that you could make a chassis lighter and more rigid by using lots of little tubes. I suspect if John Heath had continued, he would have had to copy other people. To try and pull himself into the next generation. And that could well have included making a rear engine. But you see, Cooper really created, I knew we had auto unions before the war, but John Cooper really created the rear-engined racing car. And he did it originally because he was making these little Formula Three cars with motorcycle engines. And that was the obvious way to do it. But he never wanted to do it differently. And by the late 1950s, he was winning Grand Prix uh with a very simple the t43 i think right correct, correct. absolutely and it had a uh, an engine made by a fire pump engine manufacturer coventry climax but it was all made of a It was light and it was only because cooper was so successful that rather grudgingly the others brm ferrari lotus of course had to follow him. and Colin chapman who was the great innovator in almost every way, Colin Chapman was ahead of his time and was doing very courageous, very brave things, most of which worked. But even he was very slow to put the engine in the back of the car. He didn't do it until we had the Lotus 18. And even, you know, the Lotus 16, his last single
1: seater Grand Prix car, that was still oh. racing in 1958. Fascinating years of change. You know, there's another thread here that I want to pull on, and that's, of course, Aston Martin and, by extension, John Wire, who led Aston Martin's racing efforts in the 1950s. Of course, George Abacassus had been a factory driver for a, a brief time, right? I think 1951. Well, he,
0: he yes, this may be a story which you may want to remove from the, the final edit. But George uh, was indeed part of the Aston Martin team and was very successful racing for Aston Martin. Um, John Wire ran the team and was a disciplinarian. He was a wonderful team manager. And he understood, particularly when you're running a team in endurance racing, where you may have three cars and two drivers each. So you've got six drivers to keep in some sort of order. And during this time... George Abacassis, who was already married, started an affair with David Brown's daughter. David Brown owned Aston Martin. He was an engineering tycoon who had lots of companies, and he bought Aston Martin really to have fun with it. And his daughter, Angela, was barely out of school when she and George Abacassis started to have an affair. And it was a dinner the day before the Sebring 12 hours in which Aston Martin had uh, a big presence. They had uh, three cars, six drivers, and John Wires sat them all down to dinner the night before the race so that they could have a decent meal, get to bed early, obviously no alcohol, and they'd be um, fighting fit for the next day. And so John was sitting at the head of the table, rather like a headmaster, keeping them all in order. And towards the end of the meal, I won't use the precise language that George used, but towards the end of the meal, George stood up, and said, well, good night, gentlemen, I'm going to go upstairs to take the chairman's daughter to
2: bed. <laughs> well, well.
0: He, he left the Aston Martin team shortly after. But no, John Wire, um, a fascinating character, um, and he is always remembered for his strictness, for his discipline. He, of course, not only ran with an iron rod, the Aston Martin team. But then, when Aston Martin gave up racing, he then moved, started his own organization, JW Automotive, and ended up running the Gulf, Grady Davis's Gulf GT40s, and then later on the Porsches uh, with that wonderful Gulf orange stripe on pale blue livery. So he, he, was, he, he was motor racing royalty, really, John Wire. Wonderful man. And he was known because of his strictness. He was known as Death Ray, because if you did something wrong, if you crashed a car and you walked back shamefacedly into the pits, John War would look at you with what his drivers called his Death Ray look. Um, but he did have a sense of humour, because four o'clock in the morning at Le Mans, one of the Ferraris that was battling with the 4 GT40s suddenly came to a halt, and somebody said to John War, I think Bandini has crashed. And John Wire just looked at him and said, nothing trivial, I hope. <laughs> but he, he, was, he was an extraordinary man. And a- actually, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about these characters who weren't drivers, who were people who made motor racing work, so many of them through the 50s and 60s. And when John Wire was running JW Automotive, there was another man with him who was maybe in some, from some points of view, his number two. There was a man called David York who had run uh, the Van Wall Formula One team for Tony Vandevelle in the late 50s. And he was a sort of gentler, more subtle soul, if you like, than John Wire. But they were a wonderful pair. And John Wire, as I say, ran the team in this strictly uh, disciplined way. But David York was more able to smooth over the ruffles with the drivers and sort out any little insecurities and worries, all these fascinating people. And that's why reverting to HWM, I think the whole story of HWM is about John and George. It's about two very strong characters, two very different people.
1: And HWM could not have existed without those two people. Guy, as managing director at the dealership, Obviously, all of this history and lineage is significant to you, and it means a lot to your customers as well. Yeah, with without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, we have a unique history
2: as a business. And to be able to call ourselves the oldest Aston Martin dealership in the world is, well, you can't be usurped. That's, uh, that's a title that, that that we'll carry for as long as we operate. So yeah, I think that that absolutely does matter to our customers. And we're at a point where we're entering a new chapter with Aston. They have a new range of cars coming out. We continue to be a lively business. The next model line for us is the Aston Martin DB12, which is an incredibly well-developed car. Now, we, we've we had the honour of selling every single DB model in its history from the first series. So, that aspect to our business just gives us that extra character there's always something interesting to see in our business so whenever you visit hwm we'll always have rare exotica even beyond the standard aston martin lineup and it's in our blood cars and motor
1: racing and and that will never change that's all for this part of my conversation with simon taylor and guy jenner but i'll see you back here on friday for the bonus episode don't forget, if you want to support the show with a donation, you can visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage, and you can throw a few bucks in the gas tank. Don't forget to tell your friends about the show, give me five stars on Apple Podcasts, and write a review, because all of that stuff helps me reach more gearheads like you. So I'll see you back here on Friday, and until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.